with that wonderful song ringing in our ears and touching our hearts, I pray that each one of us might prayerfully say and honestly say, Christ is my all in all. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. I have nothing without Him, and with Him I have everything. Open our eyes in the Holy Scriptures to behold wondrous things about our glorious Savior and perhaps some unglorious things about ourselves that we might flee to Him for help and hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've shared with you the story before of Tom Harmon. And if you are a... Uh, interested in sports and athletics, and if you're old enough, you'll remember the name Tom Harmon. He was a running back at U of M in the late 1930s. He was called Old Number 98. He was a Heisman Trophy winner, first in the draft, the 1941 NFL draft, so that was during the wartime. After a celebrated football career, he became an award-winning broadcaster and still kept his fame and his name on the screen. But his son Mark, who also had a celebrated football career, became more famous even than his father. After playing well at UCLA, he chose to be an actor instead of his football player, and you, uh, instead of a football player. And you might know that name, Mark Harmon, who became uh, very well known for that long-running series, and I think it's still going on TV right now, NCIS. That's Tom's son. When Mark was a young boy, he was given an old film, a 16-millimeter film, that was compiled at the University of Michigan showing his father's playing days in football. And his son called it a treasure. What it was was a compiling of every touchdown that Tom Harmon had scored throughout his entire uh, University of Michigan, Michigan career. 33 touchdowns, to be exact. One touchdown after another. There was no other play of the game. Uh, there were no poor runs. Every clip was a touchdown. <laughs> and his son Mark was awestruck by his dad. He couldn't believe it. In fact, Mark made this very interesting comment. He said, I was 10 years old before I ever knew my dad was tackled. <laughs> because they'd only given him the good clips. Well, I tell you, my friend, I'm very glad that God doesn't give us a highlight reel of our spiritual heroes, and that's all. But he allows us to see our spiritual heroes fail and fall and then get up again. At least some of them do. No, God doesn't paint his saints with perfection. He paints them, in the words of Oliver Cromwell, warts and all. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy in our study, chapter 4. By the way, I feel like I have to say this. Uh, last week when we had that horrible shutdown with the screen, 
Uh, some of you might be th thinking, why don't those texts get this all together? But I want you to know they're doing a fabulous job. And during the middle of the sermon last week, the computers decide to automatically update. <laughs> so that's been remedied. Should never happen again. Uh, but that's something you don't think of. And I just wanted to say a word of thanks to these guys and to the singers. <laughs> do a great job. Could you do the... And I'm going to let you do the clicking today. Let's see if it works. So, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We looked last week at a guy named Demas. Demas the deserter. Demas is the one who at one point in time was a companion, companion with Paul in his first imprisonment and even Paul's hands and feet and served him well. But several years later, when Paul is imprisoned a second time and he writes 2 Timothy, we read these words in verse 10. Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Demas is the deserter. But notice the next verse. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, because he is helpful to me and to my ministry. So this Mark guy is helpful, but here's the secret. Mark also was a deserter. It's an interesting story, and it would do us well to go back in Scripture and examine it. It seems as though Demas started well, but ended poorly. And Mark, although he was off to a good start, uh, deserted the apostle and ended up as being a helper, ended up superbly. Interesting contrast between the two. Put together, mentioned by Paul, just breaths apart from one another. So we ask the question, why did he run? We know why Demas ran. He loved this present world, probably allured by all the temptations of Thessalonica. But why did Mark desert? Why did he run? And what's the story? Well, to get answers to these questions, we have to go back all the way to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll also have some of the verses up on the screen so we can follow the story. We read in the very first verse, and, and this is not on the screen, but King Herod had killed James, the brother of John, the famous evangelist and disciple and leader and apostle. He killed him with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter also with every intention of executing Peter. But in Acts chapter 12, Peter's in prison and he is miraculously delivered by an angel. Do you remember the story? He's sleeping, <laughs> angel whacks him upside the head. Chains fall off and prison doors open. And when Peter realizes this is not a dream but the real thing, verse 12 of chapter 12 says that he goes to the house. When it dawned on him that this was real, he went to the house of Mary, who is the mother of John. Now I'm sure Mary had other many great uh, qualifications and attributes, but this is the one that the scripture highlights because of the following story. Mary is the mother of John, 
who is also called Mark. And many people were gathered in her home and they were praying. Isn't it interesting that Peter's deliverance was an answer to the prayers of God's people? Prayers are powerful. We stop believing because God doesn't answer in our time. But prayer is powerful and moves the hands of omnipotence throughout the world. Notice John has two names, or Mark has two names. John is his Jewish name, and Mark is his Roman name. And we might from this verse imply a few things about his upbringing. It seems as though Mary has a very sizable home because many people are gathered in the home praying, a large prayer group. It seems to indicate a well-to-do family. By the way, there's no mention of a dad, which means there could have been a divorce or a death, or maybe he was a deadbeat dad, which means the cards were really stacked against John Mark. Some speculate that Mary's house was used for the upper room, the Last Supper, the prayer of Pentecost before Acts chapter 2. It was a key meeting place for the church. And it was a wonderful opportunity for John Mark to get to know the saints. I mean, how cool would that be to have all the apostles coming to your house to eat, coming to your house to pray, and John is viewing all of that. By the way, when you have opportunity to use your home as a place of hospitality for a servant of God, do it, because it will impact your kids. Not only your kindness, but what that visitor might say. He got to rub shoulders with some of the greatest saints and apostles. And by the way, we read in 1 Peter chapter 5 that uh, Peter calls John Mark his son in the faith. So maybe Peter stepped in as a substitute dad, taught him the gospel, and John Mark believed the gospel and he became extremely close to Peter. Followed his ministry. Maybe it was something of an apprentice to him. By the way, the scripture also tells us in the book of Colossians, they had a relative by the name of Barnabas. You heard of that guy? If you go back in the book of Acts in chapter 4, his name is Joseph the Levite, but he was so good at generosity and encouraging others that they called him Barnabas, which means son of consolation the one who constantly is encouraging others instead of being called a Demas I encourage you to aim at being called a Barnabas or whatever the female equivalent with that of that would be and so this guy is a relative with John Mark and must have been in the home as well I tell you this was a fantastic place in which to live because God has designed that human relationships will encourage spiritual growth. Human relationships are designed to promote it. Some of us want to be alone all of the time. And that's a real negative thing because God has designed for us to grow in community. God has designed for us to learn from the good and the bad around us. 
People who can influence us, encourage us to go forward, or people who will challenge us and even allow temptation to come through their words. And all of that helps us grow. Remember that, book, uh, that verse in Proverbs 27 that uh, simply tells us that we are to be like iron and to sharpen the countenance of our friends? God has designed human relationships to sharpen us, encourage us. And so just as iron sharpens iron, sharpen others. Now, I must warn you, be, care, be careful of the friends you choose. Because just as people can sharpen your iron, they can dull it as well. A weak Christian will make you weaker. A strong believer will push you forward. And yet in all of this, spiritual growth comes from interaction with other people. And so John Mark had many opportunities to grow and develop in his spiritual life. And that, my friend, is good. Just make sure you follow the right person. Uh, there is a funny little poem based on a true, it's not really a poem, I guess, but it's a Epitaph that was actually written on a tombstone in England. A preacher one time had walked by and paused to read these words on a tombstone. Pause, my friend, as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon shall be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. My next action would have been to run. <laughs> lest the ground open up and swallow me. But this man said, to follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. In other words, don't mindlessly follow the lives of people unless you know they're sharp iron and they will improve your walk with Christ. So we go down to chapter 12, verse 24, Acts 12, 24, and we read these words. The word of God was spreading, continued to increase and grow. And Barnabas and Saul, so was the prior name of the apostle Paul, they had finished their mission of taking money uh, to people in need in Judea. And when they returned from Jerusalem, they took John with them, John, who is also called Mark. John's surname is Mark. I imagine there was a large group to select from. And they were looking for the cream of the crop, the best that they could find. Someone who had the capacity for greatness. Someone in whose heart and life there seemed to be uh, all the seeds of future growth. Like a a tulip bulb in Holland in the spring waiting for it to turn into something beautiful. John Mark had resident within him all the raw material that would turn into something beautiful. A life that would be useful or helpful as we read a moment ago from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And so they said let's take this guy. And he got to go on the very first missionary team. He was highly esteemed. Chapter 13 of Acts, verse 1, tells us that Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, were chosen on a great missionary trip. The very first of Paul's missionary journeys, as they're later called. 
And they left the church of Antioch. And chapter 13 in verse 5 says that when they arrived at Salamis, which was one of the first cities that they were going to on this missionary journey, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Their focus was always to go to the Jew first and then to the Greek in this particular time period. And it says, John was with them as their helper. Now this is a very fascinating Greek word. It is a Greek word that means under rower. And seems to give the picture of the old galley slaves in a ship. Sometimes they were three deep. And the slaves would row the ship. If you see the new movie uh, that was put out a few years, The New Ben-Hur, it gives you wonderful pictures. In fact, the uh, hero of the film is in one of those galley slaves rowing the ship. And sometimes they would be involved in war and they would ram their ship into another. And uh, the galley slave, the third level galley slave, which means that John's position was with an eminent team of missionaries. But you know what? When you start out, you don't always get the best positions. You've got to work your way up. However, in the Christian life, we should always be called a hooperetes, a third level galley slave. This is the very name that Paul is going to take to himself. The eminent, mighty Apostle Paul says, I'm just a low, lower rower for Jesus Christ. So John starts out as a young man in a low position with a, a famous team. And he sees all kinds of miracles. They begin on their journey and people are being won to Christ. And someone who tries to oppose them... Paul calls on the Spirit of God and that person becomes blind. And John sees all of this and he's got to be thrilled and excited. He's working with the mighty Apostle Paul. He's working with his, his cousin Barnabas and great things are happening. But after experiencing incredible success, we have this pathetic verse. Chapter 13 of Acts, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return back to Jerusalem. The guy who was off to a wonderful start, outwardly the sun is shining brightly, everything about him seems to be glorious and, and filled with potential. Inwardly there was a storm brewing in his soul. And now it breaks out. He was hiding a secret deep in his soul. Maybe like Demas, who was lured away by the world in Thessalonica, maybe John was lured by the world back in Jerusalem. For the scripture never tells us why he left. It just uses two words later on to describe it. Apostanta which is our word apostasy and desertion, which is exactly what Demas had done. He failed with all the potential in the world in the best possible place that you could minister. He failed. 
And I ask the question, why? Why does he start out so wonderfully but fail so miserably? Like all of us, right? Can you point to a miserable failure in your life? <laughs> if it takes you a long time, I dare say you've swept a few things under the rug. One miserable failure. I've got ten last week. But, but I'm talking about something that really put you down and you kind of wondered, am I really a believer? Am I following Christ? What's wrong with me? All of those things. This is where the tackle takes place. This is the fumble in John Mark's life that you never see in the highlight clip. So why did he leave? Chrysanthem, a famous church father, said he wanted to go back home to mommy. Now, granted, this church father is a lot closer to the event than I am, and maybe he had some other insight, and maybe there was some passing down. And it's possible that he was a mama's boy, and the rigors of missionary journey, of, of a missionary journey, were too much for him. That's possible, but the scripture never says it. It's possible that uh, he had to climb the wonderful high Taurus mountains that you find in Asia Minor. Paul was used to that. It's an area he grew up in. John grew up in Jerusalem. And, and by the way, the roads in this area of Pamphylia are noted for highway robbers. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was laziness. Could it be prejudice? You say, where does prejudice come from? Well, he is a Jew, and the church started very much Jewish, completely Jewish. And when the church began to expand outside of its Jewish confines, many in the church cried foul. And even Peter at one time did. Peter criticized, was criticized for going to the Gentiles and later criticized others for going. Oh, it was a tough thing. Maybe he was prejudiced, didn't want the gospel to go out to these Gentiles, didn't think they were worthy of salvation. Or how about this? Maybe it was nepotism, or at least family loyalty, because an interesting thing happens in the scripture around Acts 13. The first missionary team was called Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and then it switched to Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, someone else got top billing. And there's a lot of Christians, a lot of us, who do really well if we get top billing, but we're really poor at playing second fiddle. And maybe that upset him. We don't know. I'm just coming up with some possibilities. But this much I know. There was too much of John Mark still in John Mark. The tragedy of him leaving the team in midstream is due to the fact that John Mark was still much alive in John Mark. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? The best way, the only way to serve Jesus Christ is to die to self. 2 Corinthians tells us, chapter 5, verse 14, that we are to recognize that Jesus died for us, died in our place. 
The love of Christ compels us that because if once died, then everyone was dead. And he died for all that those who live should not live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and rose again on their behalf. We're dead in our sins. Christ gives us life, but it's not our life, it's his. So how about that famous verse in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. And this life which I now live in this fleshly body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me so much he died for me. He gave himself for me. So if Christ died for me because I was spiritually dead and has given me life, I owe my life to Christ. And as we sang a moment ago, Jesus is my life. So don't live your life anymore for yourself. Die to self. The only way to serve Christ is to die to self. And John Mark hadn't done that yet. Uh, the evidence is that someone has not died to Jesus is that their will becomes superior to God's will. That they don't play well with others. <laughs> They've got to have top billing. They're not servants. They long to be masters. And that was John Mark's problem. I remember going years ago to the beautiful Yellowstone Park and saw Old Faithful. Old Faithful's in Yellowstone, right? Yeah. <laughs> Begin to have a doubtful. I saw Old Faithful wherever it was, and it's still there. And it's amazing, Geyser, because, not because it's the biggest, but because it's what? Faithful. It's the most regular, and even Old Faithful will vary by a few minutes, but they've got down an average time, and this thing will shoot up in the air some 100 to 180 feet, depending on the pressure that built up before the, the last uh, surge. But it's the most well-known, not because it's the oldest, and not because it's the biggest, but because it's simply faithful. It's famous because it's faithful. And Paul says in Pro or, uh, Solomon says in Proverbs, a faithful man, a faithful person who can find. They are rare. Why? Because people haven't died to self yet. Too much of me in me. I'm reminded of that every day. And sometimes it's as though the Lord is chuckling when I hear him say, there's too much of you and you. And you just proved it. Two years, two years after John left on the first missionary journey, the journey went on without him. They came back and reported to the churches, and they decided, let's go on another missionary journey. Let's take a second one, go to some of the old places, go to some of the new places, and that's when the fireworks started. Acts 15, verse 36, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit the brethren that we saw the first time, the towns where we preached the word of God, see how they're faring. And Barnabas said, great idea, 
But he wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. Now let me just highlight that the word wanted is a very strong Greek word that means made up his mind. There are two Greek words that talk about will. One is bulamai, which means to determine, and one is thelo, which means a wish. Now sometimes they're used interchangeably, but this verse is bulamai. Barnabas didn't just say, hey, I think it'd be a great idea to take John. He said, let's take John. I'm determined to take him. But the scripture tells us that Paul did not think it wise because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. The New American Standard translation of this portion of Scripture says Paul kept insisting. He refused. No, no, uh, no, it's not a good idea to take John Mark because he left us. And apparently Barnabas kept insisting he'll go and Paul kept refusing and not allowing him to go. And the Bible tells us that the disagreement was sharp. The contention was so great between them. One writer said this was simply a melancholy difference between two mighty Christians. No, no, this was a knockdown, drag out fight. Between who? Paul and the son who encourages everyone. Even the most kind people can go wild occasionally. They were irate. They were livid with one another. Words were spoken. I'm not going if you're going to take him. Well, I'm taking him, and I don't care what you do. You're always trying to lead this thing. And on and on they go. Can't you hear it? I mean, I would love to see some of the great miracles that have taken place in the Bible when I get to heaven. But this is one of the bad scenes I'd love to see. Problem is, when sin's eliminated... You're not going to see much. <laughs> because this is filled with too much Paul, too much Barnabas. You know what happened because of John Mark's arrogance? The great missionary team split up. Your selfishness can split a church. My arrogance can split this church. So we need to be humble, and we need to be dead, and we need to let Christ rule. Someone said, here we have the fine art of Christian quarreling, <laughs> which many of us has, have picked up and improved upon. Selfish spirit divides the church. Now let me give you a little assessment looking back on the fact I think, number one, Mark was sincere. I think his heart was beginning to change because of the way he turns out. Secondly, I think Barnabas, this was a relative, so that could have entered into the situation, but I think Barnabas was right in trying to recover someone who fell. And get this, I think Paul was right in saying no. 
Because confidence in an unfaithful person in the time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. That's pretty powerful language, isn't it? Have you ever tried to eat on a broken tooth? Now the dentist says, okay, when you chew dinner tonight, eat something soft. Make sure you eat on the right side, not on the left. And you just begin to put the food in and you forget and you take a bite on the left. And doesn't that hurt? Or if you've got a bum ankle and you're playing basketball and you just say, you know, I'm just going to play it easy. And then you go up for that rebound and you come down and twist the ankle again. That hurts. Confidence in an unfaithful person hurts because they're going to let you down. And that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, deacons have to prove themselves faithful before they're given the position of a deacon. No novices. I think Paul's right. I think Barnabas was right. I think John Mark was right. How's that for being a wimp? <laughs> but the team did split. And that's one of the saddest things of all. The disagreement was so sharp that they parted company. Barnabas took John Mark and went to the island of Cyprus, which was the homeland of Barnabas. Paul chose Silas, and they were commended by the brothers in missionary journey two and three, and there's even a fourth, will take place as he leads. But thankfully, that's not the end of it. That's not the end. Because the guy who started out so wonderfully and failed so miserably is now going to end superbly. In Paul's very first imprisonment, we read in the book of Colossians, and this is before he wrote 1 Timothy even, Paul says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, you've received instructions about him. If he comes, welcome him. Now Paul wants to take him in with a warm embrace. John Mark emerges as a ministry partner. By the way, this is 10 years later. What happened? When I worked at GM truck and bus between my college years something used to happen on the line and in the whole shop of plant two in Pontiac called changeover those of you who work in GM will know what it's about it was a time in which they were going to retool the plant either new tar car was coming in new truck in, in our situation trucks and they had to change all the dies and retool the dies and it was a time to uh, count inventory. So the whole plant was shut down. They weren't making any more cars. They were just preparing for future production. And I'm convinced God says to us every once in a while, shut down time. I need to retool you. I need to take you away from where you are so that we can begin to get close again and you can die to self and find your all-sufficiency in me. It's time for you, John Mark, to be retooled. And it took 10 years. I don't know if it took the whole time, but that's how long it took from the time he left until the time he reemerges as a ministry partner. 
But now we go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And here's the text that we started from. This is Paul's last imprisonment. He knows he's he's going to die soon. And he says, only Luke is with me. Demas has forsaken me. The other guys I've sent out on journeys, Tychicus, Crescens, Titus. These guys are doing other ministry things which are good, but only Luke is here. So he says, bring Mark. Get him, first of all, wherever he is. Find him and bring him because he is, what's the word? Helpful. He is profitable to me in my ministry. I find it interesting that this Greek word is used of only three people in the Bible. It's used here of John Mark, who was a deserter, but retooled. It's used of Onesimus and the little book of Philemon. Onesimus was a thief, but then he was saved and he came back as useful, profitable to his owner. And it's used of Timothy. If you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul said to Timothy, if you will cleanse yourself from these things, you will become an instrument useful. So it's translated helpful in chapter 4, but useful in chapter 2. You'll be useful to the master. That's our theme for this book. How can I become useful to the master? Die to self. Cleanse yourself from your own passions and lusts and desires and let Christ reign supreme. Now get this. A timid guy like Timothy can be restored into a useful vessel in God's work. A thief like Onesimus can be saved and restored to become profitable for his master. And yes... Even John Mark, who once was a deserter, like Demas, did not follow the same course, but was retooled and restored and recovered by the grace of God for further ministry. Helpful? Get a load of this. By the grace of God, this John Mark started a church, tradition tells us, in Alexandria, Egypt, that became a mighty force for the gospel. That's pretty good. This John Mark was faithful to death being martyred by Nero. Now, I don't know how it happened, but understand that Paul was martyred by Nero. Nero was trying to kill every Christian. If John Mark came and spent time with Paul, it's possible he could have been arrested and the next on the docket to lose his head. Wow. But before all of that, he took the sermons from one of his favorite apostles named Peter and he collected them together and the deserter, maybe it was the 10 years on the island, the deserter became an author and he wrote the gospel according to Mark. Wow. That's recovery. And the great thing about the story of John Mark is that it shows that God is the God of recovery. Have you deserted? Have you stumbled? 
Have you sinned? Have you failed? And we all say yes. Then come to the one whose mercy is unending. And God can make you profitable again. Let's pray. Oh, Father and our God, thank you for the stories of the saints, warts and all. And most of all, thank you, Lord, for showing that your grace is mighty, that your love is unending. And whenever we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive us for our selfishness, our pride, our arrogance. Forgive us for not dying and letting Christ live through us. Speak mercy to our souls today in Jesus' name. Amen.